Okay, children, please pay attention. Okay, if you're in fourth through fifth grade, you're staying in today. And if you're in third grade and below, you can be dismissed to junior church. So fourth through fifth grade are staying in today. And uh, third grade down through uh, kindergarten can be dismissed. I want you to turn uh, in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If uh, you have the New International Version, uh, your Bible may have this heading. It may say something like this, Expel the Immoral Brother. Uh, The text that we're going to look at this morning is the text that deals with what some call church discipline, some call excommunication. Okay? Now I know I really got your attention with that thought, right? It's fascinating when you look at this topic because when you study through the Word of God, you, you, you understand that God wants His church to be holy. And He has given the church means by which it can pursue and go after holiness together. And this morning we're going to look at the topic of church discipline or excommunication. Different words used to describe the same thing. The goal of 1 Corinthians 5, as Paul writes it, is to promote holiness and a passion for purity in the body of Christ. So as we go through it, don't simply think in terms of technical steps that get us to the place of excommunication or church discipline. Understand that the underlying passion of Paul, as he writes, is a passion for holiness, the Bible says, without which we will not see the Lord. So God has called us as a church, according to 1 Peter 1, to be a holy people, a people that are set apart, drawn apart from the world, to be an instrument that God can use to reach the world around us. A few years ago, the Catholic Church began a discussion that became a public matter. And that discussion was, what do we do with Roman Catholic politicians who vote in support of abortion or who are pro-choice? What does the church do about that? The Roman Catholic Church having a fairly clear position against abortion and pro-life came out publicly with the statement that they were going to excommunicate, that means not serve communion, to Roman Catholic politicians who were pro-abortion. Now most of you probably remember the furor that surrounded that. Okay, I personally agree with the Roman Catholic Church's position on that issue. That if someone is a politician and is voting pro-abortion, that they should not be allowed to participate as a member of the body of Christ. Why? Because they are practicing something that is clearly a sin from a biblical perspective. Not the opinion of the church, but from a biblical perspective. I agree with the church's position on that. What was fascinating, however, was to watch the response of the world to the church insisting that its members comply with certain moral obligations or beliefs or practices. That statement that those politicians would no longer be allowed to participate in the sacraments of the church brought about a response that keeps the larger body of Christ from having a pursuit and passion for holiness. If you study this topic and read through this topic and then begin to discuss it with people out on the street, what you're going to find is that people, by and large, 
have an adverse response, a negative response to the idea of the church taking personal responsibility for holiness in the life of its members. Our world wants morality to be a what kind of matter? Wants it to be a private matter. Doesn't want the church saying, you can do this, you can't do that. And whenever the church steps into the public arena today and declares absolutes, moral absolutes that apply to everyone, you will find that there is a negative reaction to that. I am anticipating this morning that as I address the topic of excommunication or church discipline, that for many of us, it will raise up questions. Why? Because we live in a culture that values tolerance. Excommunication is not tolerant. You don't know that. Church discipline is not a statement of tolerance. It is a statement in favor of a pursuit and passion for holiness. But we can't go through the book of 1 Corinthians and avoid the fact that it deals with the topic of excommunication or church discipline. And I'll explain a little bit later what that means. We live in a world that has an adverse response to the idea of one person telling another person that certain behavior in their life may or may not be morally appropriate. That's the world we live in. A world that values tolerance, even areas of morality. In the context, the discussion is particularly about sexual immorality. Okay, that's the problem that the church in Corinth has. It has become loose in regard to its morality. And it is having an impact on the reputation of the church and therefore on the reputation of Christ. Paul can't sleep knowing that the church is tolerating flagrant, and I want to be clear on this, the, the, the topic at hand is flagrant immorality. A persistent pattern of immorality. Paul knows it's present in the church. He knows the church is not doing anything about it. He's already written them one letter. Now he's writing them 1 Corinthians, and then later he's going to write to them 2 Corinthians. Why? Because Paul's concerned about purity in the body of Christ. This is clearly a call to confront sin in the church. And I want to broaden it out and say this. It becomes very clear from this passage of Scripture that we as individual members of the body of Christ are to be careful in our pursuit of holiness and purity. We need to be, my friends this morning, passionate about holiness. After you read through this text, you will not walk away saying, I wonder what Paul really meant by what he was saying there. It will be very clear to you that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is taking a clear shot at immorality in the church and saying this, immorality has no place in the body of Christ. It must be driven out. So, let's work our way through this text. Verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 5. Paul says, and this is a, a change in topic. It is actually reported, or commonly or well known, that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that does not occur even amongst the pagans. That is just people without Christ. We hear the word pagan today and we want to load that up, don't we? Pagans are people in jail. Right? They're people that ride motorcycles. Okay? Something like that. Okay? What does Paul mean? Paul's just talking about the world, people that don't know Jesus. People who don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them and prompting and promoting them to holiness. A kind of immorality that doesn't even occur amongst pagans. They have enough of a conscience to know they need to go after it. What is it? A man has his father's wife. 
and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now I think that is a text that is fairly clear about the topic of confronting sin when it is flagrant and rebellious and persistent and hard-hearted in the context of the church. Paul says that we must deal with it. Now, let's unpack this from four different perspectives. First one is this. There must be a right cause or basis for the action that Paul prescribes in this passage. The action of excommunication or church discipline. Excommunication means this. Put someone outside of the fellowship. Okay, put them outside of the benefits of the family of God. Okay, and it's going to be mentioned three times. If you look in verse 2, he says, put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Verse 5, he uses a different way to say the same thing. Hand this man over to Satan. And if you go down to the end of verse 13, he says, expel the wicked man from among you. Okay, so it becomes clear that the topic at the beginning and end, therefore the topic of this chapter is holiness, and the way that that is to be pursued in this case is if someone is persistent in sin, ask them to not participate in the fellowship of the church. So first, if that's going to happen, there must be a right or just cause or basis for that discipline. Okay, in this case, verse 1 defines the problem. I'm going to say it this way. I believe Paul is talking about here flagrant immorality on the part of a particular individual. Okay, flagrant immorality. The word that he uses for sexual immorality is the word porneia. We get the word fornication from that. And in the broadest sense in Scripture, fornication means this. Any sexual activity that God prohibits. Okay, any sexual activity that God prohibits, basically meaning sexual activity outside of the boundaries of marriage. Okay, that is the activity that Paul lines his sights up on here, and then he's going to become more particular about it. Okay, so the first thing he's saying, there is sexual immorality. It is commonly reported. It is spoken of when the church is mentioned. It has become part of the church's reputation. That's what's bothering Paul. When people think about the church in Corinth, they think about immorality. And Paul's saying, that is the problem that this church, under the authority of Christ, must address. Secondly, it, the right basis is that it is an especially shocking case that has arisen. So rare that even the loose pagan world of Corinth doesn't participate in it. Okay, and the specific sin in context as you read through it is incest. A man has his father's wife, which most translators are going to indicate that this is speaking about a stepmother. He doesn't have his mother, it is his stepmother that he is having an inappropriate relationship with. Okay, so... Shocking. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the Bible is unequivocally clear in terms of the sin of incest. It is extremely clear. In fact, it's fascinating, even in the world that we live in, which is very loose in this regard, that there is an abhorrence of this. And don't you find it fascinating? There is a lack of tolerance of this, praise God. But that when it comes to other areas, we want to get foggy. Okay? 
Paul's saying that in general, fornication or sexual sin needs to be addressed. It can't be tolerated by the church. In this case, a man has his father's wife. Now, Paul is, I think, expressing at some level shock, dismay, that they would tolerate this. Okay, it's not just that it's present. What is more shocking to Paul is that it is being tolerated by the body of Christ, which is to be Jesus' representation on earth. Their response to it is an attitude. And here's what I want to deal with next. So there's, there's a right cause for discipline, flagrant immorality. There must also be a right attitude towards that sin. Now, the church obviously has two responses, and Paul's going to list them in verse 2. He says, he lists the sin, a man has his father's wife, and then he says this, and you are proud. What, what does Paul mean by that? You are proud. There is flagrant immorality, the kind that the world doesn't tolerate, and you are proud or conceited or kind of above it. And Paul is writing out of shock. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Okay, this, this pride about a sin that is present and an inability or unwillingness to address it, Paul says, this is not a good sign. There are two possible responses to sin. One is pride, an attitude of, in this case, indifference towards it. And you have to ask this question, why are they allowing it to happen? Why aren't they addressing it and saying, this needs to be dealt with? And one possibility is this. From the first few chapters of the book, you find that these people were kind of elitist and very nuanced in their speaking. They had ways of, of getting around every kind of sin. One writer put it in this way. They may be saying, if this brother feels free to live in this way, that's his business. I wouldn't do it, but who am I to judge him? Does that sound contemporary? Well, I wouldn't do it, but you know what? That's on your conscience. That is not the biblical approach to immorality. It leads to a pride that says, yeah, you know what, we, that probably won't affect us too much. It won't have a negative impact on the testimony of the church. Paul is saying, you've got to be kidding me. You're proud. That's what he's saying to the church. You think that you can have this in present and minimize its effect. They thought they could tolerate and control its effects. This is pride of a most dangerous kind. It is the pride that seeped in in the original sin. Has God really said, I mean, come on. I remember 12 years ago being at a meeting, a school board meeting that was a public forum, and the discussion was about abstinence um, curriculum. And I heard one of the teachers say something in response to a parent who was expressing concern about teaching looseness in regards to sexual morality. The teacher said this. He said, you know, and this is... 12 years ago, he says, you know, it is 1996. Meaning, you are a little bit prudish, kind of like a Puritan, and uh, you need to adjust your morality to the world in which you live. Isn't that exactly what Satan said to Eve? I mean, did God really say? Is God that restrictive? And that leads to a sense of, Pride, kind of a, hey, I call my own shots. I define what is morally appropriate and what's morally inappropriate. Paul say, is saying, I will have nothing to do with that. This sin he's saying must be addressed. Then what is the appropriate response? And Paul says this, the appropriate response in verse 2, you are proud, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? 
and put the man out of your fellowship. Fascinating, isn't it? He's not saying, why didn't you well up with pride and judgmentalism and condemn this man? No. He's saying the appropriate response to sin when it is evidenced in the context of the body of Christ is a deep sorrow that produces humility, but it must address the sin. But it's not out of arrogance. It's not out of judgmentalism. It's out of a desire to preserve holiness in the body of Christ. Paul says, why didn't you grieve? And the word literally means to grieve as if mourning the dead, to feel deep sadness in the heart. If it shocked the culture, it should have devastated the church. Do you see? If the world around them, if the pagans don't do this and would be shocked knowing that in the alleged body of Christ there is such immorality, shouldn't it then have a devastating effect on the part of those that are seeking to be the body of Christ? One writer has said this, our one security against sin lies in our being shocked at and by it. Our one security against sin lies in being shocked by it, saddened by it will cause us to resist it and to fight against it for the glory of God. Why? We remember that it is sin that crucified Christ. And so when it is present, it doesn't produce a response of pride and elitism and arrogance and condemnation. It provides a definitive response that says that sin can't be part of the Christian experience. And when it is evidence, it must be dealt with. May God grant to us His heart in relationship to sin. May we grieve sin not only when it is present in our own lives, but when it is present in the lives of our brothers and sisters, may we go in broken tones and say, we need to deal with this. This needs to be driven out of our life. We can't tolerate it. I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. Does sin grieve your heart? When I hear of it, when I see it, does it grieve my heart? Does it cause me to respond and say, God, be gracious to us, be merciful to us? Does it grieve our hearts and cause us to seek to see it driven out of our midst individually and corporately as a church? This easygoing attitude towards sin that is present in Corinth is always dangerous in the body of Christ. And friends, I just want to encourage you this morning, cultivate a passion for holiness. When you see sin, say, God, help me to have your perspective on that. Help me to see that it is that that crucified your son our sin, then there is and must be after an appropriate attitude, an appropriate response. Folks, and th this is the harder part of this text. To talk about our attitude towards sin is one thing. To say that we should be sad about it, we should grieve over it, yeah. That's very personal, isn't it? But the text doesn't just say we must have a right attitude towards sin. It says we must also take appropriate action. And this really becomes simply a test of, am I willing to obey God? Are we as a church willing to obey God? Do we really believe in the authority of Scripture? Do we believe that it is our final test for what we ought to do and how we ought to live and the decisions that we make? Do we really believe that? Because if we do, this text lays upon us an awesome responsibility. I touch base on verse 2. Paul says, you should have put this man out of your fellowship Verse 5, you should have delivered this or handed this person over to Satan. Verse 13, you should expel the wicked man from among you. 
it, it becomes clear that the response to flagrant, hard-hearted, persistent sin is that this individual must be asked to not participate in the fellowship of the body of Christ. There must be an appropriate response to sin. What is it? If I put it in a word, I will say it is this. It is confrontation, which most of us don't like. I think, it's, I think it's important that as we look at the action that is prescribed, that we ask, first of all, who is involved in this? Now in verse 1, Paul says it is happening among you. That is in the context of the body of Christ in Corinth. What does that mean? It means that in regards to morality, the church is to take an active posture towards driving out immorality in its presence. In the context of the body of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Verses 9 through 11, I think, give an interesting clarification. Notice what Paul says. He's anticipating this tendency towards imbalance. He says, I have written to you in my letter, that is a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Which means Paul has already addressed this topic with this church. Not at all, verse 10, meaning the people of this world who are immoral. So he is not talking about immorality in the context of the world at large. He's concerned about the church, the body of Christ. Or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. If you wanted to be totally separate from sin, you would have to go into a commune. Which I think what Paul is saying here is that that kind of lifestyle that is extremely separatistic, that has no interaction with the world around it, that, that Paul's ruling that out. If you're going to have no interaction with sin, you would have to go out of this world. Why? Because we live in a world that needs to be reached for Christ. We shouldn't, as the church, go around condemning sinful people. But we do have a responsibility to address sin when it arises in the context of the church. Verse 11, he says, But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother in Christ and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, don't even eat. That's powerful. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Paul says when sin is present, the church has the responsibility to address a so-called brother, not the world at large. Paul is not saying go out and be critical of the world around you. Nor is Paul saying violate the command of Jesus in Matthew 7, 1 that says don't judge lest you be judged. Because that's a passage that often comes up when you talk about confronting sin in people's lives, isn't it? The world around you at some point, I am sure, has said to you, doesn't Jesus say you shouldn't judge? Right? How many of you have had someone say that to you? Right? It happens. What is Jesus talking about? In the context, Jesus is talking about a hypercritical spirit that continues to pick at people while failing to address sin in one's own life. Folks, one of the powerful things about being sensitive to sin corporately in the body of Christ is that you will keep better watch over your own soul. Because you're aware of the negative effect that sin can have on the body of Christ. So who is involved the body of Christ addressing, and I want to be very clear on this, a church member who is living in hard-hearted, unrepentant sin that is adversely impacting the testimony of the church. In verse 11, Paul calls that a professing Christian. Okay, it's someone who 
on the surface says, I am a believer in Christ. That individual, Paul says, is a church member who is living in hard-hearted, unrepentant sin that is adversely affecting the testimony of Christ. Go back to verse 1. It is reported, it is commonly known that this is present and unaddressed in the context of church life. What is the setting in which this discipline occurs then? This act of putting someone out of fellowship. Verse 4, I think, clarifies. Paul says this. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord is present, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan, which I believe is synonymous with what he means in verse 2, at the end of the verse when he says, put out of your fellowship, the man who did this. Synonymous with hand him over to Satan. Okay, so what is the action? If there is hard-hearted, flagrant sin, how is the church to respond to that? Well, one response is tolerated in the name of love. Think that letting destructive behavior in someone's life will not negatively impact them. Overlook it. Folks, can I say this? That there are many times in the church when we know that sin is present, clear-cut in someone's life, and we are unwilling to help them. Because we're afraid of being accused of being judgmental. Paul says that's not an option. In fact, when you get back to Matthew 18, you'll find a fuller-blown description of the pattern for church discipline. If your brother has an offense against you, go to him alone. If that doesn't work, take a brother to him. If that doesn't work, tell it to the church, which is the step that Paul's at here in, 2, in 1 Corinthians 5. He's already at that step where excommunication, putting them out of fellowship. Jesus says it this way, let them be to you like an unbeliever. That is a fearful statement. Why? Because hard-hearted, unrepentant sin indicates very possibly a lack of genuine conversion. Okay, That's the fearful part of this text. That's the part that gets your attention. So the setting in which it occurs is when the Christian community is gathered. It is a corporate responsibility. It is to be done in the name of the Lord, I believe, based on Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in the context of dealing with church discipline. Jesus says, I am in the midst. When the church is taking action of this very difficult sort in the context of the body of Christ, Jesus says, I am there under my authority. Respond to sin. Our culture has adopted such a weak view of the church that this is hard for us to grasp, isn't it? This sounds like foreign stuff. And yet it is critical that we as a church understand how seriously God wants us to take sin when it is present. The biblical response in terms of the action required is confrontation and excommunication. Let me just deal with two phrases. We are to put them out of fellowship which is what verse 2 is very clearly saying. End of the verse. Put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Flagrant, hard-hearted immorality that harms the reputation of the church. Verse 5 makes it stronger. Hand this man over to Satan. Let me ask you this question. What, what do you hear when you hear that? What do you hear when you hear that? I mean, the, the church is God's domain, Right? And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that the world is the domain of Satan. He is the prince and power of the air. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying if someone persists in hard-hearted sin and is unwilling to address it and repent of it, 
put them outside of the church and when you put them outside of the benefits of the corporate body of Christ. What is Paul assuming? Paul's assuming that there is a benefit to gathering together, to hearing the word of God, to singing praises to God, to growing together. There is a benefit that is present when we gather and love the body of Christ and pursue holiness together. He's saying the person that is unwilling to address sin in their life, put them outside of that realm. Okay, that's the action that's called for. Excommunication. Uh, later he says in the end of verse 11, with such a man do not even eat. So it gives me the picture here. In the New Testament, eating dinner together was an indication of fellowship. It was sharing life and sustenance together. What is Paul saying? Don't support someone who is living in flagrant sin. Okay, don't support someone who is living in known flagrant sin. Draw back from them. Why? Interesting question. Leads to the last thought this morning. There must be a right purpose for confronting sin when it is present in the church. What is, what is the purpose of excommunication? What is the purpose of not looking past sin in one another's lives? Why does God want us to address it? And address it in strong terms. The end of verse 5 gives us, I believe, an indication. He says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and the spirit saved on the day of Christ. Other indications, I think, relate to the reputation of the body of Christ at large. It's one thing for sin to occur in the church. It's another thing for the world around us to know that the church is tolerating that sin, that the church lacks the courage to address it. Okay, it's not shocking to the world that people sin. It is shocking to the world that often the church is tolerating behavior that they know is unbiblical and that dishonors God. We don't help people when we ignore their sin, when we coddle sin and minimize its effects. We do harm to the body of Christ. This text points to the seriousness of sin and calls us to be sensitive to sin in general and corporately in the body of Christ. We Look, Christian living is a corporate experience. It's not an individual experience. It is something that we are called by God to do together. And so what, is the right, what are the right purposes for confronting sin? And I just want to list a couple of these for you. From verse 5, one is it reveals the seriousness of sin and may lead to repentance. That's Paul's hope. Paul isn't saying, shame that man. Put him out and uh, you know, just, just embarrass him. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, put him out so that he experiences a detachment from the benefits of being part of the body of Christ. And by God's grace, he will shed his sin in repentance and flee back to the benefit of being part of the church of Christ. Okay, that's the purpose. It's not to embarrass. It's not to pull someone down, put others down, lift ourselves up. No, the purpose is that the church is a place of purity. And in putting someone out, they realize the seriousness of their sin. They're called to account for their sin. You say to them, I'm sorry, I can't fellowship with you until you deal with this issue in your life. What does that say to them? They're serious about this. God's word is serious about this. And I need to address it in my life. In that case then, excommunication is not inconsistent with love but instead is the proof of our love. 
Folks, the world's reaction is what? I can't believe the Roman Catholic Church is doing that to politicians, not letting them enjoy the sacraments. The response of the body of Christ should be, we can't let someone who is living a life completely contrary to the message of Christ participate in the benefits of Christ. Do you see? It's an appropriate position. Excommunication, church discipline, it reveals the seriousness of sin and may lead to repentance. That's the hope. That's why when disassociation from someone takes place, we should be seeking after the face of God for their restoration. That's the goal. Not to punish. It's chastisement which has the goal of correction, bringing back in to fellowship in the body of Christ. Secondly, it protects the purity and testimony of the church. Look at verse 6. Paul says, this boasting of yours that you tolerate sin is not good. Don't you know, and this, this draws on an Old Testament analogy, don't you know that a little yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough? Now, if you've ever worked with uh, bread making, okay, uh, where you're using yeast, or uh, my wife was into a sourdough bread. Remember the, we had the starter. Remember the starter? Okay, that's the weird stuff that sits in the refrigerator in the jar. You make the new batch and you pour the starter and it's got the uh, living stuff in it. And when you mix the, that little bit of living stuff in with the dead stuff, what happens? It, it, it affects, has an impact on the whole. Okay, in the ancient world, they would preserve a little lump from the large lump of leavened dough. And in that little lump was leaven. When you made a brand new lump of dough and you put that little lump of leaven into the larger lump of dough, what would happen? The yeast would affect the entire loaf. You, you couldn't put it, plug it in without it, in a living way, going through it. In the Old Testament, leaven, or yeast, was a picture of sin. The assumption on the part of the church in Corinth is what? You can have a whole lump of dough and a little bit of yeast attached to it, but that yeast will stay isolated. Not the way it works. And the picture from the Old Testament is, often, the Bible says, drive out the leaven or the yeast from among you. Why? Because a little leaven or yeast affects the whole lump of dough. It will permeate and affect it. The church is living with an assumption that is proud. That's why Paul said, your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And they would automatically know that this picture of yeast would be an analogy to sin in the Old Testament. If you tolerate sin in your life, folks, not just the church corporately, individually, you can't segment your life and say, I have sin in one area of my life, but it doesn't affect the whole. Paul is saying your boasting isn't good. You can't hide sin in your life. Long term. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. A little yeast will affect the whole lump of dough. So Paul is saying to the church, Church discipline, putting leaven out, putting sin out, protects the purity and the testimony of the church as a whole. So the yeast principle, a small amount of sin, permeates the whole. Its effects cannot effectively be contained. Okay? So when it comes to sin in our lives, when it comes to sin in the church, take a personal responsibility for each other on the basis of Galatians 6.1 that says, with the spirit of meekness, go to someone who's struggling. Not in pride, but in humility. Grieving their sin with them and for them. So that we as a church body can experience what it means to be the holy bride of Christ. The last thought that emerges in verses 7 through 8 then, and I'll just close with this. Confronting sin exalts 
the life-changing work of Jesus Christ. When someone falls into sin, what are we pointing out to them? What should we be pointing out to them? We should be pointing out to them that there is hope in the cross work of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. Get rid of the old yeast that you may become a new batch without yeast, as you really are. Meaning what? The church is a new batch of dough that God is working on. He doesn't want leaven to contaminate it. Verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the festival. What is the festival? End of verse 7. For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, the Passover lamb, is a picture from the Old Testament. When Israel was delivered from Egypt, freed from the bondage, and brought into freedom in Christ and in God's work, what happened? A Passover lamb died. Their life was preserved. They were set free. In our sin, what do we deserve? We deserve God's judgment. We deserve death. Christ, our Passover lamb, has what? been sacrificed for us and we are set free from the bondage of sin. When the church confronts sin, it exalts the cross work of Christ. Why? Because whenever we confront sin in our lives, we do it on one basis. That is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us from sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness based on what? Based on on the shed blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Now, I love the way Paul says this. In verse 8, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, beginning in verse 8. Let us then keep festival. What is festival? Festival is holiday. Festival is holiday. What is holiday? Holiday is the time when you celebrate achievement. What is the church to celebrate? The achievement of Christ that frees us from slavery, in sin. You understand why we should address sin? Because when we address sin, we exalt the cross work of Jesus Christ by which we are set free from the consequences of our sin. Folks, when we help each other out, always remember this. The one helping someone who has fallen is always a sinner who has been affected by the grace of God, who is seeking to communicate the grace of God into the life of a brother or sister who is in need. Individually, we have that responsibility. Corporately as a church, we have that responsibility to be sure that we preserve this lump of dough that we are worked in the hands of God to be a, a work that is holy and that is pure. This morning I want to ask you this question as we close. Is there a sin in your life that you need to confess, confront and confess? Is there an attitude that says, you know what? Overall, my life is fairly pure. I had this one area where there's a problem, but I'm keeping it contained and it's not going to affect the rest of my life. The warning from this text is this. A little leaven, a little sin will affect the totality of your life. If I adopt a casual attitude towards sin, it will destroy my life. If we as a church adopt a casual attitude towards sin, it will destroy our church and the testimony of Jesus Christ that is to be exalted here and celebrated here for His glory. We bear personal responsibility. Please understand how I say this. We bear personal responsibility for each other's holiness. This text, I think, without doubt, promotes that simple thought. We are to be passionate about holiness. 
in our personal lives and in the life of our church. This is a text that causes you to go to God and say, God, help us, help us to live in obedience to your word. Help us to love holiness. Help us to not tolerate sin. And I just want to challenge you this morning. Do the work of investigating your own heart before God today and ask him to give you a heart, a passion for holiness. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Father.